0: We invite any kids here between kindergarten and second grade to be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find uh, through the door over here on your left by the piano. And while our children are being dismissed, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If you're using one of those Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, that's located on page 731. 731, Isaiah chapter 53. In my uh, mental list of places I'd like to visit someday, one of those places uh, that I'd like to go at some point in my life would be the uh, cemetery for uh, soldiers... Killed in World War II, located in Normandy, France, uh, overlooking Omaha Beach, one of the five uh, D-Day beach landing sites. I've never been there. My wife's been there. She says it's a a really powerful experience to go to that cemetery uh, to see the all of the graves. She says you get out of your car and the graves just stretch out in all directions as far as you can see. You know. Actually, there's about 9,400 graves there at that cemetery on about 172 acres of land. And you can walk among the the graves of these, um, I guess, boys, men, 17, 18, 19 years old, who threw themselves onto the beaches uh, of Normandy to liberate Europe and to protect our freedoms. And you can walk among their gravestones or you can stand on the edge of the cliff overlooking Omaha Beach and And just imagine the transports coming and emptying their troops and these young soldiers going in a straight line up the the beach toward the cliffs where the Germans were uh, mowing them down. Um, And I, I suspect, again, I haven't been there, but I have this suspicion that when you walk around a cemetery like that, marking the heroic sacrifice of so many people, I have a feeling it must be like you're on sacred ground to some extent. Well, that's the same way I feel whenever I come to Isaiah chapter 53. I feel Isaiah chapter 53 is like walking on holy ground. There's something sacred about this text. Of course, all the Bible is sacred. It's all the Holy Bible. But not all of the Bible describes the heroic sacrifice of Christ with the kind of uh, intensity and clarity and power as does Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of the reasons I find this text so sacred. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it for you and then I'll uh, spend the remaining moments with you here in this service looking at the text in detail. But it actually starts in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. The chapter division is in the wrong place. Uh, the prophecy actually begins in chapter 52, 13. It says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living." Isaiah 53 is divided into five stanzas, with each stanza being three verses in length. So 15 verses, five stanzas. And the first stanza, chapter 52, verses 13 to 15, that first stanza is the introduction to the prophecy. It brings us to the central message of the prophecy. It's kind of like a movie preview. This is the way I see it. It's a movie trailer. If you ever go to the movies, they always have previews in the beginning. And a good movie preview will give you enough information about the movie so that you get a sense of what it's about and where it's going, but not enough information so that you understand the whole plot and you have all your questions answered. It should leave you hanging a little bit. So that at the end of a movie preview, the the goal is you should be nudging the person you came with saying, Oh, we got to see that one. That's going to be interesting. How's that going to turn out? And that's what this uh, opening stanza does. creates a sense of tension. Specifically what it does is it uh, raises what is an apparent contradiction. There's an apparent contradiction between verse 13 and verses 14 and 15. Verse 13 talks about the heroic servant of God, God's hero, God's deliverer, God's Messiah. And verses 13 and 14 talk about the same guy who's beaten and mangled and marred and abhorred. And you try to put it together, and you say, how does this fit? How can this guy be the victorious hero, but also this person who just gets clobbered? Look at verse 13. Here's the hero. God says, see, my servant will act wisely. I'm not really too thrilled with this translation here in the NIV, that, where it says, my servant will act wisely. I think a better translation of that Hebrew word is that my, my servant will... the idea is, act wisely so that he will succeed. The point is that the servant is given a task and he's going to do it. He's going to fulfill the task. He's going to be successful. This hero will save the day. He will do what he's sent to do. And as a result, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So uh, that's what you'd expect, isn't it? That if someone is a hero and they accomplish the task, they're going to be raised up and exalted. And, you know, that all makes sense. But then here's the twist, verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. But I thought he was the conquering hero, and now you're saying he's all torn up so that you can hardly even recognize him as a human being. When I read that uh, verse and I was thinking about this sermon, it made me think of that movie, The Passion of the Christ. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's a very difficult movie to watch because the the sufferings of Christ are portrayed very accurately for the times and historically, but it's very brutal. Um, I think probably the most grisly, difficult scene for me to sit through was during Christ's scourging when uh, the the Roman guards were whipping him and and in those days they used these weighted and and barbed whips to, to really tear a guy up. And, and they're just going to town, whipping him on his back, and he's, he's just a mess. He doesn't look like a person. It's just a bloody mess. And then I remember that horrible scene where the, the Roman who's in charge of the torture looks at Christ and looks at the other two soldiers, and, and he does this hand motion, which means flip him over. And, and I, I just almost couldn't watch that. You know, it's one of those ones where you watch the movie like this, as, as they do the same beating on his, his stomach and his chest. It was just so awful to think of what they did to him. He was so uh, tortured and beaten that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He didn't look like a human. He just looked like a bloody pulp. And, and how is that? I mean, How can that fit together? Is he a hero or is he mangled and marred? Is he raised up and exalted or is he so low and beaten down that we're uh, appalled to look at it? Which one is it? And so ends the first stanza. It brings a sense of apparent contradiction. And it propels us forward into the prophecy as we say, I've got to see this. I've got to figure out how this all comes together. The second stanza, which is chapter 53, verses 1 to 3, introduces us to this servant. And the thing that I note most of all about chapter 53, verses 1 to 3, the second stanza, is that this is the most unlikely hero you've ever read about. I mean, as far as deliverers go, this is not the guy that you would guess would be the deliverer. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is going to be so unbelievable. Hardly anyone's going to believe this story. <clears throat> verse 2. He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. When I think of a deliverer, when I think of a Messiah, I, I think of a big oak tree of a man. Some kind of towering giant. A, a California redwood. Some huge person, you know, like The Rock or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Some, some guy you look at, him, mean, he's just a towering mountain of a man. You say, that's a conquering hero. But this guy was not some huge tree. He was a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground. You know, he's more like those... Uh, those little fragile alpine plants. Have you ever been hiking up in the, the White Mountains above tree line? There's these little uh, plants. They're you know fragile, you know uh, whatever endangered plants, and they're just coming out of the rocks. There's a crack in the rocks, and somehow plants growing out of it. And they're so fragile that they have to fence off the the walks. You only stay on one trail because if you were to go off the trail and step on these plants, you'd, you'd crush them. You'd kill them. They're so fragile and, and endangered. You know that's the kind of
1: hero, this is.
0: It's just sort of a fragile little nothing. And isn't that how Christ came into the world? He wasn't born in the imperial palace of Rome to the bloodline of the Caesars. Instead, he was born in you know, Bethlehem. Who ever heard of that place? And they... His delivery room was a stable. His first crib was a food trough for animals. His parents weren't anyone famous. They were just a couple of peasants. The only reason you know the names Mary and Joseph is because Jesus was born to them. Otherwise, you never would have heard of them. They're just a bunch of nobodies, poor peasants. That's how this guy came into the world, like a little tender plant. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. If you were to look at a crowd of people with this deliverer in it and try to pick him out, he's the last guy you would have picked. He's not one of the beautiful people. There's nothing about him in the sense of worldly trappings that you would look at him and say, Wow, that's the guy. (laughs) You'd say, I don't know who it is, but I know it's not that guy. (laughs) Look at him, forget it. There's nothing glamorous about this person. There's nothing prestigious. Uh, There's nothing about him that would make the paparazzi want to follow him and take pictures. He's just an average person. But not only is he sort of poor and humble and very average and nondescript. But it's even worse than that. In verse 3, we see that he's despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrows. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. And like that hymn we just sang, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know, suffering and misery is not attractive. When people are in misery and they're in suffering, it, it's difficult to be around people in misery. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You've been in miserable situations different times in our lives when we're going through struggles. Maybe you've been through an extended depression. Or maybe you've gone through an ugly divorce. Maybe you've been sick and had to experience chemotherapy or some kind of treatment that's prolonged and some extended illness or... Um, Maybe you lost someone in your family and you're in a state of grieving. And, you know, people act funny around you, don't they? They're like, why are they acting like that? And, you know, maybe they'll send you a card or something, but people act weird around you, and people you thought you could count on aren't there for you. And it's a very strange thing to go through it, something like that and to find all these people you thought were there for you not there. You know, what is that all about? And I think the answer is we as human beings just don't deal well with suffering and misery. And and most people's response to misery is to pull away from it. And it takes training, it takes a a real compassionate heart, it takes a decision to be around people who are in extreme suffering. It's very hard to do, it's very difficult. And the normal reaction is the reaction that he got, to be despised and rejected. And I think especially that's true at the, the apex of his suffering. At that high point when Christ was on the cross, the the very most excruciating crescendo of his suffering, where his body was shredded from the beatings and his body was smeared with blood and he was pinned to that cross by those savage uh, spikes. That's when he was most rejected. That's when the soldiers who put him there made fun of him, you know, just another criminal on a cross and they gambled for his clothes and... That's when the religious leaders who had put him there gathered around him and they, they mocked him and you know, said, okay, if you're the Messiah, get off the cross now. Go ahead, we're all watching. And, and hurled their reproach in his direction. <laughs> Cried how out loud. The other thief on the cross was making fun of him. Like you know you're at the low point when the other thief who's nailed right next to you is mocking you as well. You know that you've hit rock bottom and that you're miserable. What kind of a hero is this? He's a nobody born to a poor peasant family. He has no beauty or majesty. He's rejected. He's a man of sorrows. Then the answer comes in the the third stanza, which is verses 4 through 6. And this is where there's a huge twist. And this is where uh, the the whole story takes a gut-wrenching change of direction and we're caught off guard. This is when the the whole mystery of how he can be a heroic person, but a miserable sufferer, comes together and and we we see how it all works. Verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Isn't that ironic? We're sitting there looking at this guy on the cross thinking, boy, he's got to be some kind of scum if he's on a cross. Look, a person's on the cross, they're there for a reason. And it's not a good reason. And so we look at this guy and we shake our heads at him and we go, oh, come on, it can't be him. And the great irony is that he's there for our sins. He's there for me and suddenly I go, oh, I didn't realize that. In fact, it's even more explicit in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. You all understand the concept of uh, substitution. This is a basic concept we all have a grasp of. There's substitutions in sports. You know, one hockey player subs in for another hockey player. One basketball player subs in for another. You have substitute teachers in school. You come to school one day, your teacher's not there, there's another teacher in her place. That's a substitute teacher. Well, this person is the substitute sufferer. That's who he is. The substitute sufferer. He's suffering in my place. He's absorbing the punishment that I deserve. I deserve to have the wrath of God... Slashing my back. But instead, he offered up his back. I deserve to be pierced by God's anger for my sins. But instead, he offers up his arms and his feet. I deserve to be rejected by God and to be cast aside by God and and to be thrown away from God's presence forever. But instead, he raises up his voice and he says... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in my place? Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're all stray sheep, every single one of us. We all deserve that punishment that Christ took in our place. We're all sinful people. Every one of you here is a sinful person in God's sight. I am a sinful person in God's sight. None of us has even come anywhere near close to pleasing God with our lives. We're like stray sheep. We just go the opposite direction. The shepherd says, go this way. And I say, I'm not sure I want to go that way because I see a clump of grass right there. Munch, munch, munch. Oh look, there's another clump of grass. Munch, munch, munch. And 30 years later, I've munched myself so far away from God, I have no idea where he is. That's our human condition. It's, it's the stray sheep. It's rebellion against God. And we try to water it down. We try to say, well, you know, I'm not perfect. And I've made my mistakes. And uh, I have, you know, I have some issues. I have some baggage. I have some dysfunction. And all that's true. But my point is that sin is a lot more than that. Sin is more than just making a mistake. It's more than just having issues, which we all have. It's more than just having some dysfunction. Sin is living contrary to God's will. It's rebellion against God. And as a result, it deserves condemnation and judgment. I remember uh, talking to a pastor. I just met him this one time. He's from Connecticut. And he was telling me a story about uh, a guy he was ministering to in a hospital. This man was dying from a... Uh, sexually transmitted disease and you know this man who was dying he'd lived a you know, wild life drugs and promiscuity and perversion and you know, just all the he put himself in a context where it was very easy to catch uh, this, this disease and he was dying from it uh, and, and the pastor was trying to talk to him talk to him and it sounded like he kept hitting a brick wall with this guy finally he just asked the guy one day he said, can I just ask you if you were to be suddenly cured from this disease would you go back to the same way you used to live? And the guy said, oh, absolutely, in a second. He said, that's me. (laughs) I'm just like that. I don't know how many times God has forgiven me and pulled me out of a hole, and I just say, thanks, God, you know, and I'm right back into it. And I step right back into the same patterns and the same way of treating people and the same way of responding to situations. And I realize that I have this this, uh, deformity of the soul called my sin nature, that even as a Christian still haunts me and I I fight against it, but it's there. I am a sinful person and I deserve God's judgment. I deserve His condemnation. But instead of pouring out judgment on me, what has God given me instead? He's given me the substitute sufferer instead. And the Lord has laid on him, verse 6, the iniquity of us all. No, that's right. I mean, what else can you say? I mean, just, words fail at that point to describe how amazingly incredible this is. It's more like verse 15 of chapter 52, where it says the kings will shut their mouths because of him. That's how I feel when I really grasp this idea that Christ died for my sins, though I deserve the opposite. I don't have anything to say. I just shut my mouth. The fourth stanza is verse 7. And in the fourth stanza, Isaiah wants to show us and remind us that the sufferings of this servant were not for his own sins. So in the second stanza, we learn that he's a suffering servant. In the third stanza, we just saw he's a substitute sufferer. And now in the fourth stanza, we're going to see that he's an innocent substitute sufferer. In other words, it wasn't for his own sins. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So here we have the sheep imagery again. In verse 6, it carries over into verse 7, but now it's used very differently. In verse 6, we're the sheep, and we're like sheep in that we've all gone astray. But in verse 7, now he's a sheep, but he's like a sheep in a different way. He's a sheep because he quietly and and gently submits to being sacrificed for us. I mean, that's the thing about sheep. They don't complain. They don't fight. They just go wherever you tell them. And and it's easy to kill a sheep. And, and so he goes humbly and quietly. He doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't complain. And isn't that how Christ went? After the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed, Father, if you can take this cup from me, do so, but not my will, thine be done. And he prayed that three times. And the soldiers came. And he just put out his hands, they let him tie him up. They took him to the midnight judgment hall, this trumped up jury, and he stood before him and and they slapped him and spit on him and made fun of him and accused him and brought in false witnesses to spread lies. And you know the amazing thing in this trial is the guy never says a word. He doesn't answer back. He doesn't make an explanation. He doesn't try to confute their arguments. He just stands there and takes it. It drives them crazy. You read the stories, they get enraged. They're like, why won't you answer us? What's he going to (laughs) say? He's not there to get off the hook. He's trying to stay on the hook. He is purposefully there to suffer for sinners. And so he just takes it. He just does it. He's not fighting back. He's not answering. He's just like a lamb, taking this abuse, knowing that this is the reason that he came. Was to suffer and die and he does verse 8 by oppression by this unjust trial and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken and so he pays the ultimate sacrifice just like those soldiers at the beach he paid the ultimate sacrifice he gives up his life for us And it's appropriate that he does so, because if he's really going to be a substitute sufferer for my sins, well, the wages of sin is death. And God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so if he's going to really take the punishment for my sins, then he's got to do the whole thing, which means he has to stand there and and face the final tidal wave of death. And so Christ really died. He suffered and died. That's an important part of our confession as Christians. Verse 9, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so this is how the fourth stanza closes. It closes with the suffering, innocent, substitute sufferer being put into a tomb, cold and, and stiff and And at the end of the fourth stanza, we see that huge gravestone rolling into place. And that's how it ends. But praise God, this is the five stanza prophecy. Not four. This is five. And there's one more stanza. Isn't that great? The fourth stanza ends on a Friday, but the fifth stanza opens up on a Sunday morning, on an Easter morning. It says in verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. This is very important, that Christ died on purpose, that Christ suffered all that intentionally. It's not as if Jesus made some kind of political miscalculation and as a result caught it. No, no, no. He intentionally went this path. He was born as that cute little baby at Christmas that we celebrate in order that He might grow up to be a man and walk in a straight line unflinching toward the cross. Just as those, those soldiers got out of those troop transports and made a straight line up the beach toward their objective, Christ landed in this world and He made a straight line for the cross. That's why he was here. It was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It wasn't a hiccup. This was it. He did his job. He completed his mission. His mission was to suffer for Jeremy's sins. And he did it. That's why on the cross, when he was about to die, he didn't say, whoops. He said, it is finished. I did it. And so, because he is the innocent sufferer who completed the task, He's not left in the grave because our God is a just God and He wouldn't leave Him in that grave. What did Christ's substitute sufferings accomplish? What's the upshot of it all? And as we look at verses 11 and 12, we see there are two results, uh, two consequences. There's two things that come as a result of the fact that Jesus successfully suffered for our sins. The first result is something for Jesus. The second result is something for us. So the first result, what is it that Jesus happens to Jesus as a result of his suffering? And the answer is, he is raised and exalted. Raised and exalted. Just like I said back in chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will succeed. He will be raised and lifted up. Uh, you see the, the raising and lifting up in chapter 53, verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge." Now, this is amazing. 700 years before the coming of Christ, there's this prophecy giving extended, detailed references to the suffering of Christ, and then even including the resurrection. You know, I think sometimes there's this idea that the resurrection is kind of an idea that evolved slowly over time, and a couple hundred years after it happened, there's this legendary story about a resurrection, no, no, no. 700 years before the coming of Christ, God was already ramping us up, getting us ready for this thing that's about to happen. That's why Jesus could say, according to the Scriptures, the Christ must suffer, die, and be raised on the third day. Because it was prophesied ahead of time. It's amazing how God has put this right here in the Bible. But not only will He be raised, He'll also be exalted. Verse 12, Therefore I will give Him a portion among the great, and He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He's going to be exalted. He's going to sit in the victor's seat. He's going to have the green laurel wreath around his head. He's going to have the medals and the trophies. And he's going to be exalted for what he's done. Because he completed his mission. In fact, you know what that verse reminds me of? It reminds me of a passage in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2. This whole prophecy reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. In fact, let's turn there. Put a little bookmark, because we're going to come back. Put a little bookmark here in Isaiah 53. And look at Philippians chapter 2. It's on page 1162 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. Page 1162, and we'll look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is the, the New Testament condensed counterpart of Isaiah chapter 53. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself There is none other. There is no other name. There is no one who comes close. Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, nothing. They are nobodies. Because none of them died for your sins and my sins. Only Christ did that. Only Christ has been exalted. Only Jesus is the name above every name. Because none other have done what He has done. And so we as a church need to be about one thing above all else. Proclaiming Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's our mission. Is Christ? One word, Jesus. That's it. We're here to worship Jesus. We're here as a church to glorify Jesus. We're here as a church to obey Jesus. We're here as a church to know Jesus Christ. We are here to uh, exemplify Jesus Christ in the way we relate to others, each other as Christians. We we want the life of Christ to show forth in how we interact. And when we go out to the world, our message is very simple. Christ died for sinners. Christ crucified is our message. I mean, beyond that, we really don't have a message. We, we don't have much to say. That's what makes us different from anything else in the world, is our message is Christ crucified. That's one of the reasons I like the uh, aid project. Remember, Tim was up here telling us how we're raising money for the tsunami victims. And one of the things I love about this organization that we're giving money to is they not only given a cup of cold water and some medicine and some food, but they're also there to share the good news of Jesus with people. Because frankly, it's cruel to just give a cu- cup of cold water if you know about Jesus. It's cruel. Because what, what are you doing? You're prolonging someone's life, prolonging the inevitable, a day, a year, ten years. But if you never give them Christ, and you know about Him, I mean, that's the most cruel thing you could do of all. And so we have to be proclaiming Christ that's God's answer. Not just a cup of cold water, but the, the cup of suffering that Christ took on our behalf. So what does Christ gain for Himself through all of this, going back to Isaiah? He gains glory and honor. That's what it results in for Him. And what does it result in for us? What's the results for us? And the answer is in verse 11. Our result is we get the forgiveness of our sins. It says at the end of verse 11, My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Uh, The word justify there is a very important word. It's a very specific technical word, especially in Isaiah. It's a courtroom word. It's a legal word. And the idea of justification is, is of a judge slamming down his gavel and saying, not guilty. That's when you know you're just. When the court views you as innocent and upright when righteousness prevails. And God looks at me and he says, Jeremy, I view you as a law keeper. A law keeper. I, my kids and I are um, studying the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism right now. and we, Actually, a couple nights ago, we were talking about justification. And I was trying to teach them what justification meant. It was kind of tricky when talking to a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. But, uh, but th- this is the little mnemonic I gave them. I said, justification means that God looks at you just as if you had never sinned. And they're like, oh, I think... you know. So that one, I didn't make that up. I've heard that before. But it's a nice little way of thinking about God looks at me just as if I never sinned. God looks at Jeremy as if Jeremy was holy, pure, and has always kept God's commandments. That's hard to accept. It's hard to let that integrate down into your person. You're like, are you sure, God? Because I don't think that's how I've lived. God says, no, that's how I view you because your sins have been given to Christ. And that's difficult for us because we look at our lives honestly and we don't see purity and law keeping. We see law breaking. We see sin. We look in our lives and we see drunkenness and alcoholism. We look in uh, our lives and we see um, anger and rage and things we've said to people that have hurt broken relationships. Things we've done to people that have hurt them deeply. We look into our lives and we see promiscuity and affairs and divorces. We look into our lives and we see um, lies and abortions and wounds that go deep. And then we hear God saying through Christ not guilty. And it's hard to believe that Christ could forgive us. But he did. He took our sins upon himself so that we could be just in the eyes of God. Over Christmas, I uh, finished, read a book over my Christmas vacation. It's called Band of Brothers by Stephen Ambrose. You maybe have seen the movie. It's a miniseries. It was on HBO. Amazing. If you can see this miniseries, you should see the book's even better. But it's a story of the 101st Airborne's Easy Company uh, in World War II, and it traces their journey from training to Normandy, through Holland, and then finally all the way to the end of the war, where they, they actually captured the Eagle's Nest, Hitler's Eagle's Nest, his exclusive retreat in uh, Austria. And, and it traces their journey throughout all of it. And it's an amazing book. You read these guys, about these young men, and you're like, these guys were heroes. They were amazing. But, you know, there's another side to war. It's easy for us to stand back and say, look at those great heroes. But it's another thing to be in the battle. And war. You know, as I say, war is hell. And there are atrocities in war. You do atrocious things in war that you never would have done in peacetime. And even if it's justified, you know, killing people and blowing things up is is hard on your psyche. It's hard on your mind. It it hurts. And uh, all kinds of things happen in war. There's looting. There's promiscuity. There's drunkenness. There's just all kinds of stuff. And a lot of guys come back from war not feeling like heroes. They come back feeling like monsters. A lot of guys come back from war with um, ghosts and demons in their heads and memories they can't erase. Um, one of those guys in Easy Company was a sergeant named Sergeant Skinny Sisk. And Sergeant Skinny Sisk came back from the war and, and he had the ghosts and he had the demons. And so he tried to, to ease the pain by uh, alcohol and he, he became an alcoholic and that obviously didn't fix things. He said, then my sister's little daughter, so that would be his niece, four years old, came into my bedroom. He said I was too unbearable to the rest of the family, either hungover or drunk all the time. And she told me that Jesus loved me and she loved me and if I would repent, God would forgive me for all the men I kept trying to kill all over again. The Skinny said, that little girl got to me. I put her out of my room told her to go to her mommy there and then I bowed my head on my mother's old feather bed and repented and God forgave me for the war and all the other bad things I had done down through the years. A couple years later Skinny Sisk became Reverend Sisk he was ordained as a minister and became a minister of the gospel that he had experienced there in that bedroom. The message of Jesus Christ is so profoundly deep that I can preach on it here for a half hour to you and I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface. But it's also so profoundly simple that a little four-year-old can effectively communicate it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. If you would like to do that simple task of just confessing your sins to Jesus and asking Him for forgiveness, and you've never done that before and would like to do it so that you could know for certain that you are saved and forgiven, just take a moment now in the the silence here just to, to make your own prayer to God. Jesus Christ, we worship you and adore you because you alone are the name above every name. You alone are the one who walked the gauntlet of the wrath of God in order to pay for our sins. You alone are the victor who conquered death and rose again. You alone are the one who can forgive us and make us right with the Father. If there was another way, you surely would have done it. But this was the way, the only way. And so we worship you, we glorify you Jesus. I pray that you would communicate your forgiveness and absolution through your death on the cross, to anyone here who seeks it with a sincere heart. And I pray for those of us who are Christians that we might live with such a sense of worship of you and trust in you and hope in you, Lord. That we might have our consciences cleansed by your blood. That we might know that we are your forgiven children through Christ. That we might live in the freedom and liberty that comes from the forgiveness that Jesus brings. I pray this all in his name.
1: Would you take your worship folder, please? And we're going to join in singing together. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, my cornerstone, my solid ground. Would you stand and let's join together and celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This corner shone, this solid ground, burned to the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, of God in helpless faith. This gift of love and righteousness scored by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross that Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin was laid here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again and as he stands in victory since Christ has lost its grip on me for I am his and he is mine but with the precious blood of Christ First try to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever block me from his hand till he return. nor cause me harm. Here in the power of
0: Hope you have a great week. Uh, After the service, our prayer team is here. Janet and uh, Lisa are here. They love to pray with you. Just come on up, even if you don't know them, and say my name is so-and-so. Could you pray for whatever it is? And they'll pray confidentially about anything going on in your life or someone you're concerned about. And uh, after the service, I'm going to go downstairs. There's a new visitor's table downstairs. And I'm just going to hang out there. If you're new at the church, you'd like to just say hi. I'd love to say hi to you and introduce myself and give you some uh, literature